Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a special episode of Today in Ohio, normally a news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Today, we're doing something different. Today, we have gathered five thoughtful people from different parts of the political spectrum to see if we can find areas of agreement on some of our hotter issues all have volunteered to participate. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm the editor of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer and the moderator of the discussion. Allow me to introduce the five guests. Bob Paulson considers himself a right-leaning moderate who served for 10 years as the mayor of Solon. He regularly corresponds with me about things that appear on our platform. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. Dean DePiro served five years in the Ohio House as minority leader and works today in public law, representing municipalities and working with private clients, interacting with public entities. He's the former mayor of Parma, and he serves as a law director and prosecutor in a couple of communities. Welcome, Dean. Chris, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Jane Cordeville is a physician certified in OBGYN and clinical genetics, the director of obstetric imaging at university hospitals. She's a first-generation American who is nearing retirement. She is active in her Christian church and also in her husband's synagogue. Welcome, Jane. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Alex Messina is a fourth-year associate attorney in antitrust tax and securities areas. He's the former chapter president of Cleveland State's Federalist Society, and he has done election analysis on television for the 2018 election. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. Last but certainly not least is Sheila Wright, somebody I've known for quite some time. She's a real estate developer, an entrepreneur, and soon to be a regular columnist for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Today is about hearing some new voices, and Sheila is one you will get to know well. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Okay, so we're going to tackle some some big issues. I have asked one person each to be the first responder on an issue, and then hopefully we'll have a freewheeling discussion. Not doing this in any particular order, but we're going to start with the issue of guns. We all know Cleveland's having a big violence problem. Cleveland itself has tried to regulate guns. The Ohio legislature has been step-by-step making it easier and easier for people to get guns, and it's led to lots of debate. 
So Dean's going to be the first responder on this because when he was in the legislature, he dealt with some of it. Let's start with the first first big question, Dean. Should the government have the ability to require people to have permits to carry weapons? Well, thanks for the question. Uh, and I would say absolutely. Um, and maybe from perspective, in, 2000, in 1999, I was elected to the legislature and I served as the minority leader of the uh, Criminal Justice Committee when the, the first CCW bill was being debated at the time. And as you know, uh, the legislature, Governor Taft was governor, a much more moderate governor. The legislature was much more moderate uh, then than it is today. Uh, you know, you had you had uh, some conservative members. Now you probably have 30 or 40 conservative members. Back then you probably had six to 10 backbenchers as we called them. Um, the, we ended up in 2000, I, I left to take my seat as mayor in 2004, but at the end of 2003, we passed the first CCW bill, which um, you know required a permit to carry. Uh, there were a couple of bills. Uh, there was a bill that was uh, introduced by the backbenchers, very conservative, that you know would not require you to have a permit. But actually, the bill that was passed um, that I voted against or I was opposed to, but it actually wasn't a bad bill. Uh, it did have a lot of restrictions in place. As you know, and as, you, as your uh, organization has covered, throughout the last 18 years, the legislature has become more conservative and they've chipped away at you know these reasonable regulations that are in place. As a matter of fact, now there's a bill just to not require a permit at all. So I ab- absolutely believe that a permit should be required uh, and there should be de- definite standards in place. I still believe that today. What, what about the argument that the Second Amendment says you can't infringe on the right and that guns are like any other tool and that we count on people to generally be responsible with their tools? Um, so that, uh, that argument has been around. We heard that when we were debating the first bill. The courts have ruled that the government can place reasonable restrictions, uh, even on a Second Amendment type uh, issue. Um, so as you know, People, I would say this, most people are responsible gun owners. Most people get the training, they use gun locks, they secure their weapons, um, they, they follow the law. But as you know, there are people that are not responsible. Um, you know, a great example is, um, and, and frankly, many of my conservative friends were, uh, were, were glad to see that the two parents in Michigan were charged last week with allowing their, uh, their son to, uh, or two weeks ago after the shooting in Michigan. That is not responsible gun ownership as far as what I've read. Um, and so there are, should be limits and you need to be responsible. Okay, we have both Sheila and Bob have something to say. Let's start with Sheila. Thanks, Chris. So, um, you know, I, I just think that with respect to uh, how we view guns, they, it should. I think it goes beyond the scope of a tool. Uh, they are weapons um, that can be used for hunting or, or to protect yourself. And I think, um, you know, if we use the analogy of vehicles and automobiles, you know, prior to different policies and practices that we put in place requiring licensing, um, um, oversight, uh, regulations, we had a lot of uh, uh, fatalities when we first came out with automobiles. But, you know, what I've found is that any suggestion or mere mention of um, any kind of encroachment 
that's perceived to the Second Amendment is fought vigorously uh, by the by the um, NRA. And so, I don't. Most of the people that I know feel that responsible people are just that, and they can use their guns and 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 continue to you know move about the about the country. But um, there shouldn't be a a, a sub zero game of we can't have any kind of changes to this. Um, I think that we should have some oversight and I think it goes beyond it being a tool. I mean, it's a weapon, um, just like an automobile can be when not regulated or used properly. Bob, you know that this is kind of a line in the sand for members of your your party. They just don't want to negotiate this. Do you think there's a room for compromise so that we can meet in the middle? Well, I agree with what Dean had to say about the legislature becoming more and more conservative. I actually refer to them now as the Caveman Caucus. It's something I don't uh, prescribe to. Um, I do believe that there still still should be concealed carry laws, but they're doing things down there now to get cute, just like they're doing, and we'll be talking about it later with the pandemics, with masking and vaccinations. I just don't know what that agenda is down there anymore. But um, I have some debate with my ultra-conservative friends about the Second amend- Amendment. I think, obviously, has the right to bear arms. But I think when the founders of our Constitution uh, wrote that, they never had in mind, of course, they didn't have those kind of weapons then, military-style weapons like AR-15s. So you may have the right to defend yourself and defend your, your home, but um, I think it's just gotten too far to the right right now. And honestly, I don't know who they're trying to play to because most of the people I know uh, don't agree with that mindset. Jane, you have, you have your hand up. Uh, yes. I think going back to what Sheila said about the zero-sum game and what Bob said, I think that reasonable people can all agree that we want our kids safe in schools, we want guns out of the hands of mentally ill people or people with domestic violence problems. I think there is a lot that we can agree on and it is basically uh, the NRA and a lot of politicians that are ginning it up for their own um, purposes to either raise money or to attract that base. But I think reasonable people, there's a lot we can agree on. Alex, do you have something you want to add to the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when thinking about assault weapons, they actually don't commit most of the homicides uh, in the United States. Most homicides from firearms are from handguns. But are we going to ban handguns? You know, that's something that I think gives a lot of people on my side of the aisle uh, pause. But I think there's a couple of things we can do that where there is agreement, like banning bump stocks, banning high capacity magazines and banning armor piercing rounds that I think that we can all agree that no one should have access to armor piercing rounds because, you know, police wear them. For the, for the longest time in this country, Alex, you you were required if you could walk away from a fight to do so, that 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 was the requirement to keep people safe. And over the last five, 10 years through the Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground laws, that's gone away and it kind of manifested itself in a big way 
in the Kyle Rittenhouse case where he went up to to Minnesota with a big gun, and when people confronted him, he felt he was in danger, he shot them, he was acquitted. Should stand-your-ground laws that protect that kind of behavior stand? Should we keep them, or should we veer back to where we were before this wave of NRA-backed legislation was passed? So, sure. So, just at the outside, I think before these stand-your-ground laws uh or around, you know, everyone has a duty to retreat uh, unless you feel like you were threatened. Uh, even before a stay in your ground, uh, if he, if someone did feel that they were threatened, they would be allowed to uh, respond with proportional uh, force. Uh, but I think what we see with Rittenhouse, and I think what we saw with uh, uh, George Zimmerman in Florida uh, way back when, I think that was almost 10 years ago, um, we see people inserting themselves into a situation and then claiming stand your ground. Uh, and I think we don't want to encourage that behavior. And I think that there is consensus to uh, adjust our uh, laws to uh, sort of crack down on those that decide to insert themselves into a situation uh, and create uh, an unnecessary risk of uh, uh, violence. Bob, do you agree with that? Do you think that, that there could be a weakening of the stand your ground laws, that there could be a consensus about that? Um, yeah, I think I think the uh, a consensus has to be reached. Um, I understand, you know, the people who say that I've got the right to protect my home without uh, retreating, but um, I just think without some kind of regulations that um, uh, people just cannot be taking the law into their own hands. We talk about uh, even, you had a, a topic here of red flag laws, Chris. Um, I don't know how a state can monitor um, social media. Um, and another example of, I don't have a lot of confidence in that. Another example would be um, the parents in Oxford, Michigan, bought that kid a gun. Now, even if he was sending out red flag messages on social media, it was his parents that went and did that. So how do you ever prevent something like that? Um, I, I just don't know that it's something that could be monitored by the state very effectively. Well, Sheila, I wanted to ask you about that because you mentioned the the uh, the mental health aspect. And Jane, I'll, you'll be next. But but if you are worried about depriving people with clear mental health issues of being in possession of firearms, and one of the thoughts of the DeWine plan was to actually monitor social media to see if people are using those kinds of code words that are the red flag. Would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with the government operation that's looking at social media for clues? Well, uh, I believe that's the case now, right? I think that's the reality that we're, that we are in. Um, you know, our laws are barely keeping up with our technology and, um, the type of monitoring that's occurring. I mean, it's happening rap rapidly, these changes. So, you know, ideally, of course, we would like for people to have privacy and be able to communicate, but that is not the world that we live in. And so um, because we haven't found a way to work cohesively with, you know, the... Um, the owners of these, you know, social media, the, the CEOs and these companies, um, they don't seem to be 
um, I don't I don't know how well they're playing with our our legislatures to to create the laws to regulate that. And so I think in an absence of clarity, um, in an absence of process, I think we have to you know. Um, lean to uh, safety, right? You know, err on the side of caution as it relates to safety. Okay, Jane, so. you, uh, you, you're saying you think it's a, a public health issue and you are in agreement with the others on this? Uh, oh, you're muted, Jane. And muted, sorry, self-muted. Um, I'm probably the only one that's been in the ED seeing somebody come in with a gunshot wound to the chest. Um, and once you've been in that situation a few times, and I have, um, you know, you, you feel that we really are not doing enough to protect our populace, our children in schools. and. Anything that affects safety, physical safety of someone is a public health issue. And I do agree, you can't, we're not going to stop 100% of people with guns um, doing bad things. But even if you cut it by 50% or 60%, that's still thousands of people. Okay. I, I see Bob and Dean, you have your hands up, but, but I want to get to some other issues. And I'm kind of surprised at how much agreement there is on the gun issue. Let's, let's try another one where there might not be. Let's talk about elections. For decades, for most of our lives, elections were sacrosanct and trustworthy. We had no issues with them. We changed the rules a little bit, more and more so in recent years, to allow voting by mail and things. But there was never any doubt that our elections were safe. We had the, the Bush-Gore election with the hanging chads in Florida where there were some questions and then we made better voting machines. But now elections are, are a mess because of what's happened over the past year. Is there a way back to having us all agree on the safety of the system? And Bob or, or Jane, you're going to be the first one to talk about this. There's some basic questions about should we require a standard form of photo ID? This is an area of of big fighting. Should there be a standardized national plan for voting by mail? Uh, should we think about online voting? Is there a way back to trustworthiness? What do you think? So I was um, heavily involved with the League of Women Voters as we were um, campaigning for fair districts. And I think that when you see gerrymandered districts, that immediately disenfranchises a large segment of the population. And once you're disenfranchised, why would you go out and vote in the first place? So I think the first thing we need to do is get our house in order in terms of uh, making sure we end gerrymandering and have fair districts for everybody. And that's certainly a bipartisan issue. It has never made sense to me that we wouldn't have at least a minimum uh, voting requirement in each state so that at least at a minimum they cannot dis discriminate against certain groups and that state to state 
at least something is um, the same. Um, I think having at least some form of ID isn't an unreasonable thing because uh, I think we want to make sure that people trust that the person voting is actually voting. Um, in terms of mail-in, I think that that really is, I mail in every single time because I my schedule is such that I might not get out in time to vote. Um, so. I think that it's very reasonable to mail people an application. Of course, then they have to take the second step and mail it back in. Um, the um, and early voting. I, I just fail to understand why that somehow corrupts an election. I just think we should make it easier for everybody to vote. That's in the interest of our democracy. Okay. So, Bob, the the idea that, that elections are under attack, people are questioning whether the the mail-in voting is, is safe. And there are people on the left that don't like the voter ID rules because they say people in poverty might not have the government ID, although you need to show an ID to do just about anything else. Do you think there's a way to bring back the confidence? Well, I agree with Jane that I think you have to have some form of identification in order to be able to vote. I also think that Ohio is kind of a model for elections in terms of being able to vote absentee, being able to vote in person, uh, being able to vote 30 days before an actual election. Uh, I don't, I've always felt that if someone couldn't get out or in some way vote in that 30-day window, then there's a real a real problem with that. Um, I also have voted absentee for years because I just think it's easier. I have no issue with the Secretary of State sending out applications automatically to people who are on the rolls. And again, as Jane said, then it would be their job to um, fill out the application, invest the 58 cent stamp, 58 cent stamp right now, and also pay for the ballot to send it back. But I just don't understand this voter suppression uh, cry, especially in Ohio, when it's, I just find it so easy to vote in that 30-day window. Okay, Dean, you, you're next. Thanks. And uh, I, you could tell Bob was a, was a mayor also because mayors... Uh, they don't wear. They shouldn't wear stripes when they're when they're running their towns. A D Democrat Republican shouldn't matter. It should be common sense. And I agree with what he's saying. If you look at Bush Gore, like you brought up, Chris. Okay, Bush Gore was contested, and the, the courts ruled, and you know there was some grumbling, but we moved on, and we we and we we um, we fixed a number of items in voting tw over the last twenty years, etc. Um, I do agree. Uh, that uh, with with uh, expanding early voting, I do think there should be an ID requirement. Um, what that looks like, you know, we I think we leave that to the states, but some kind of ID requirement that uh, one of the speakers indicated makes a lot of sense. And the other thing I would say is, as far as the rhetoric, I, I applaud the Republican Secretary of States around the country that pushed back on uh, the former president's um, and his folks. Uh, cry that the, the the election was rigged and fixed. I mean, I give them a lot of credit. Uh, it, the, the whole thing is disgusting to me that it continues to to uh, to fester. And it's political, um, and it appeals to the thirty percent or the twenty five percent or whatever that is that you're never going to change their mind. 
But um, you know, I think that I think that we've come a long way with voting. It's gotten better, and there's we can make it more improvements. Sheila, you've been active in some of the elections inside the city. Where where do you come down on things like voter ID and mail in voting? Well, you know, I I agree. Here in Ohio, we have a different kind of model than um, many of the states around the country. In terms of an ID requirement, I just think we need to be creative and open about what that ID requirement should be. You know, I mean, from a privilege standpoint, we don't think twice about going to get an ID. You need an address. You need certain things to be able to get a, a picture ID. And so um, we need to work with our ecosystem um, that provides wraparound support for those who are most marginalized. Um, who are not always seen in, in, in everyday processes to make sure that they are included and to find out what they need to be included. So that's one thing. Um, I think your other question was about the mail-in. I, right. I, I have not had, had a problem with mail-in voting. I think that, again, if we look at this in a broader scope, you know, if you look at um, you know the, these attacks, I, I believe there have been attacks on our democracy um, around the country. Um, if you look at the, uh, frankly, the aftermath of the Jan- January 6th insurrection, you know, when you have, um, I think to one of the other guests um, reference, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be political, but a party suggesting that an election is stolen and still <laughs> perpetuating that, um, I think we need to think about um, acts uh, efforts like for the People Act, you know, to dismantle partisan gerrymandering, um, to to make sure that you know there's some there's some oversight to how we draw these lines and not just according to partisan politics. So I think it's a bigger issue, and history has shown us that states cannot be trusted. You know, after um, the right to vote was instituted with the Fifteenth Amendment, as most of you know. Um, even though people in the north of color could vote, people in the south could not. Those states systematically over time took took those votes away. And, you know, when you have, I'll just speak frankly to it, um, you know, when you look at a state legislature like uh, Georgia, who can create targeted um, um, actions towards one city that doesn't apply to the rest of the state, you know, I think you need some kind of oversight around that. So I think it's a bigger issue. I don't see a lot of problems happening in Ohio, but that's because of, I think, a lot of efforts of who we are in Ohio and, and, you know, but that could change. That could change. So I just think we have to continue to watch this closely, not take it for granted um, based on our experience. We can't make our personal experience universal. We have to think about this overall and how this affects people, um, you know, who may not be in a position that we are in here in Ohio. Okay. Although we do certainly have a gerrymandering problem in Ohio. Alex. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Alex, you've got your hand up. Sure. So more talking about a, a different issue with respect to elections. There's this idea of election interference from foreign governments. And I was a little disappointed that there wasn't some consensus on this issue between Republicans and Democrats, uh, if Russia and China, and I think even Iran, uh, were trying to you know, influence our election. I was sort of surprised that there was no sort of efforts to combat that. You know, what I heard that they would do is they would make uh, two different opposing Facebook uh, group events 
that are you know opposite uh like the polar opposite types of groups of people and put the event you know location near each other just to gin up uh you know uh protests and uh violence and i think that i would like to see a little bit more action on uh, with respect to that okay you know jane you're bringing up the idea or you brought up the idea that we should have an independent board of elections but the problem with that would seem to be that most people are in one party or the other, that there is a natural partisanship. Everybody who's participating in this discussion leans one way or the other. And it, and it gets to one of the questions that I, I wanted to discuss here is how do you oversee elections when everybody is a member of one of or the other tribes and is trying to carve out their part? That's certainly why we have gerrymandering. Well, I also think, though, if you listen to the conversations that we've had, even though we lean one way or the other, I think we all have this vested interest in making sure that everybody's vote counts and everyone can vote. I think everyone on this call feels that way. And I, I just see just getting it out of the political arena, especially redistricting, um, is really important. Okay, Bob? And I think what probably led to Trump's false narrative about this last election being stolen was when the judiciary and legislatures, especially like in Pennsylvania, changed some of the laws on the fly during the, um, the last election. Um, I have, I'm a big advocate of absentee voting, but I really think that um, those votes in order to be counted should be postmarked uh, before election day. Pennsylvania changed that where they even, uh, and it didn't affect the outcome of the election there, but they had 3,000 ballots come in that were uh, not postmarked. And I think that um, that again, just feeds into that false narrative so the legislature and the judiciary cannot be as political as they have been. Uh, that just hurts our confidence in um, uh, fair elections and outcomes. Yeah, normally I think the the rules could be pretty standard, but in that year we happen to have the pandemic, so people were doing all sorts of dancing. We also had the, the boxes. What's interesting, though, is this is the second issue we're talking about where reasonable people mostly agree. And I think it's evidence that the national debate on this is controlled more by people on the fringe and that that most Americans probably aren't that far apart. Let's see if that continues in the other topic. I hope you all could stay for at least one more topic. We're not going to get to all of them. Uh, I hope uh, I hope you're available. If you have to go, just let me know. Uh, let's let's talk about the pandemic. The the 1918 pandemic taught everybody a lot of lessons about fighting future pandemics. There were health boards created and, and the ability to, to demand quarantines and and health orders. I mean, in 1918, if you had it, they would put a sign in your yard letting people know so that they wouldn't come near you and get sick. This pandemic was almost from the beginning politicized and it stopped being as much about what's going to keep us safe or not. And it became much more about our supposed rights. It's, a, it's been a fascinating development and I think a whole lot of people have died as a result because they don't know what the facts are. So, so let's talk about some of the different areas and, and Bob, you agreed to be the first one on this. Should the government have the power to shut down things like businesses and schools and governments 
during a pandemic. And let's start first with the private sector, because I think that created a, a bigger issue. It's, um, it, it's a matter of enforcement. My um, daughter and her husband and her kids are going to New York right before Christmas. And, you know, de Blasio has now in, instituted uh, a bunch of lame duck um, mandates now. My question is, is how do they enforce it? She even called some restaurants up there. They were trying, planning on going to visit. And the restaurants said they had no intention of, um, you know, complying with that. And, and, and New York can't possibly have enough inspectors to, um, to enforce that. How do you mandate um, common sense? It's just like the anti-vaxxers. Um, there was an article that, Chris, you ran as a guest column in the Plain Dealer, I think, last week the day, week before, a doctor who's in the Ohio legislature um, is saying, you know, medicine tells you these vaccines work. Uh, you won't get sick. Um, you will get sick, but you won't get fatally sick. And I just don't understand why people, um, we didn't do it with polio. I remember lining up with my parents at, uh, at community centers or high schools back in the 60s, uh, where we took sugar cubes for three weeks. You just didn't have this kind of pushback. So where have we lost this? I think the pandemic, this pandemic, especially during an election year, when Trump was such a denier to start and started referring it to the China virus and a whole number of other things, that really just confused things. But my attitude is get, get vaccinated, wear a mask. We didn't have flu last year because we were wearing masks, or at least the flu problem. But I just but let, don't understand. I'm sorry. But let me interrupt you, though. I mean, it is... It, the, the governor decided at the beginning of the pandemic, when we knew very little about this and just that it was going to be bad, that the best way to stop it from spreading was to close business, to, to close everything down. We had the big shutdown orders. Everybody stayed home. Uh, and I know I'm, I know Jane's going to want to speak about this. She's a longtime physician. She saw the results in hospitals. Should the government have that ability? Because that became a central theme of the division, that the government should not have the ability to shut down business. We should count on people's better angels to do the right thing. Should they have that ability? Are you asking me? Well, Mrs. Jane? I, well I was asking. I was starting with Bob and then I wanted to go to you. And then Dean wants to say something. But but Bob, you're coming from the conservative side of this discussion it, it, w would you agree that there might be the use of serious quarantining and shutdowns? Or do you think that's something that we should just not be doing anymore? I think we know more about COVID now than we did a year ago. Um, I have concerns for those businesses who were shut down or mandated to be shut down that will never open again. And that's kind of like where I draw the line in the sand. I'm 100% in four vaccinations. I'm 100% for masking in certain situations. I just don't know if we mandate these things, what kind of relief are we going to provide to these businesses, especially the privates that we shut down who may never be able to recover again. All right, Jane, you're the one that works in the hospitals. So you've had things, I imagine, that have been canceled, the elective procedures and things. You've seen how the facilities get overrun. <clears throat> Do you think that the the philosophies we established after 1918 should still prevail and that we should do things like close 
close business and schools and things down? Well, I think what we need to do is follow the science and get the politics out of it. This is public health. Um, and if we had done that from the beginning and people would have gotten vaccinated, wore masks, we would be in a very different position than we are right now with letting viruses uh, mutate. And now we're going into, I don't know how many you know Greek letters we're up to at this point. Um, but the point is, is let's say you decide not to take care of your diabetes. Well, it only harms you. If you don't get vaccinated, if you don't wear a mask, you are putting a lot of other people at risk. Um, uh, people who can't be vaccinated, like a three-year-old. And I just don't think, if you would have talked to a World War II veteran and told them Americans in 2021 wouldn't put a piece of paper over their nose to help others, they would have told you you're crazy. And I, I do think we can't, we have to do what the science tells us, not allow people to decide what their science is, what their version of reality is, because it's not really reality. And when people don't do these things, it's us in the healthcare profession that then take the risks. We talk to you about getting vaccinated. You don't want to. You come in and then we're put at risk also. Okay. Dean, you have something? From a government's perspective, your question was whether or not, and, and I agree with everything that's been said, especially about the science, but, you know, I do think you, you gov and I worked at state and now I work in local government, you, the government has to maintain the power to control a pandemic and, and use tools in the toolbox. And if that means ordering shutdowns, then then so be it. Now, the other question is whether or not they, you know, I think they should have the power, but whether or not under the circumstances, they need to look at the facts to determine whether that's appropriate. At the end of the day, people are elected, governors and mayors are elected to lead, and you got to make tough decisions. And you may not have a majority, but you take the science and you look at it and you make a decision. And at the end of the day, the voters will determine whether or not um, you've done the right thing or not. But I think you, you have to allow the government that ability. I mean, we didn't know what we didn't know. I, I mean, I think the governor did a lot of good things at the beginning. Um, I don't agree with everything he did during the shutdown, but by and large, he was going with what he knew at the time. So I think you have to allow government to have that ability to control the pandemic. Alex, you're coming from the right side. Should the government have that ability? And take it a little bit further. Should I have the right as the government to force you to wear a mask when you're inside any building where the public gathers? So with respect to your first question, I think the legislator should actually have that power, not the executive branch, and certainly not in perpetuity. So sure, I mean, I think the governor may be allowed to shut down for uh, a week or two, but, you know, to have consistent COVID measures that last, you know, months, I think the legislator should actually take the reins on that and not just leave it into the executive branch. Um, and that I think that, that would be a conservative perspective. Let, let, me, let me stop you, though, because in Ohio... We've had a legislature that has basically passed a bunch of laws to stop the, the executive branch from being able to do anything. And, and if, if it were put into the hands of this legislature at the beginning of the pandemic, there wouldn't have been any shutdowns. Um, would you, you'd be comfortable with that? 
Well, I think we saw, you know, other states have different sort of approaches to shutdowns. I'm not sure we wouldn't have had any shutdown uh, if the legislator was in control, but I think the the tolerance for the shutdown uh, really took a nosedive. You know, when, you know, bars would have to shut down at 10 p.m., there was so much put pushback in the public from that. They thought, oh, COVID, you know, stops at 10, I guess, or, you know, starts at 10. And I think when we see, you know, COVID measures that, are somewhat inconsistent with maybe the science uh, that undermines public perception in COVID measures. You know, having to wear a mask when you enter in the restaurant, but then being able to take it off. I know there's probably, that's maybe a controversial uh, point of view, but I would say that that's my point of view. Sheila, we did see that from people gathering in the beginning of the pandemic, you had super spreader events. So so if you would if you would have been able to stop some of those, you might have contained more of it and facilities like those Jane works at wouldn't have been overrun. Where do you come down on the idea of the government's ability to close things down to stop people from gathering? Look, in most declarations of emergency, you know, whether it's a snowstorm or hurricane, um, you know, we have some familiar provisions around that, right? And I think that um, I think Alex might have made this point when you talk about the separation of powers. I mean, the governor typically cannot, I mean, he cannot act without the legislature. He can't just, you know, be this kind of dictator. However, in states of emergency, we do afford them a little more scope, a little more broad reach. So um, I think, you know, in hindsight, um, I, I think it was, I think it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, with what the information that the governor had before him, I I would prefer that rather than to risk it again. I'm more of an air on the side of caution kind of person. Um, but I think as we move forward, you know, we want to make sure that, um, you know, our governor and our legislature are informed uh, and up to date as much as they can um, to make decisions. But I think at the onset of this, we were in a state of emergency without the knowledge, without the traditional um, um, systems in place that we have around known emergencies like hurricanes and snow snowstorms and that kind of thing. So I'm okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with how DeWine um, handled um, this at the early at the early stages. Okay, but Bob, as things stand right now, if we had another pandemic start tomorrow, the governor could not do what he did at the beginning of this pandemic because the laws have been changed and he's lost that ability. So if another pandemic were created tomorrow, you wouldn't really be able to do much about it. Well, we seem to, some politicians seem to want to fuel this distrust of government in general. I mean, we have wacko theory testimony in the Ohio House right now or this year, this past year, where they're telling you, where doctors, are, some doctors are telling you that uh, the vaccine could make you magnetic. I mean, what kind of nonsense is this? Also, whoever anticipated the minority community having such skepticism of the vaccine based on some past history with things like um, uh, tests for syphilis, it's just, I think there were just so many unanticipated roadblocks that came into this, I'm just not so sure that until we start to fuel that trust of our government again, if that's possible, that we're not going to continue with these same problems 
in the future. Yeah, I just, I, it felt like if you look at the history in 1918 as a country, we came out in a much greater sense of unity in trying to fight this in the future. And it feels like with this pandemic, we've walked away from that. I mean, Alex, you're, you're probably the only one that's too young to, to be able to answer this question. But if this pandemic had broken out 30 years ago, does anybody else on, on in this discussion think it, this would have been politicized or do you think it would have gone the way Jane said? It would have been a much more of a World War II sensibility. Let's do the right thing. It didn't happen with the Salk and Sabin polio vaccines. Our parents um, recognized the problem. We went and got our vaccines. No one questioned it. And um, as a result, we don't have polio. Uh, I am not so sure that's going to be the case with COVID because as long as you keep having these variants, it's going to be, I feel it's going to be an endemic, maybe not a pandemic. But even in the 60s, there was not this kind of pushback about uh, those polio vaccines. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's what strikes me. Um, I mean, I think Jane's right. If people from <clears throat> World War II got up and looked around today, they'd think, what are you doing? You won't put a mask on? It's a, it's a simple thing. If you think about what people put up with in World War II, it was a lot more onerous. We have gone 45 minutes, and I had asked you for a half an hour. We had two other topics that uh, I had on here that maybe um, you might be willing to come back and talk about in January with policing and education. But I think 45 minutes is probably our upper limit. Anybody have anything they'd like to close with here? I think you guys mostly agreed, which is a good thing. We demonstrated that we can reach agreement. Does anybody feel differently? I think most of America is either center right or center left right now. Uh, unfortunately, the political discussion is being controlled by uh, the extremists. But I think this discussion today shows that we pretty much agree with each other. Sheila, Jane, you agree with that? Jane, go ahead. Um, the way I feel after this discussion is much more hopeful <laughs> that at least in our area, we have a lot of extremely reasonable people and we should be able to move forward with reasonable things blocking out all of this other shrill rhetoric Sheila, you agree? You get you a little more confident we might be able to get somewhere? Oh, absolutely. When when there's an opportunity for people to come together, the problem is the loudest, the people who are beating the drum the loudest are the fringes, and um, we have to work against that. Alex, you think the same thing? Absolutely. I think it just, this just shows that, you know, sitting down and talking with each other really actually, I think, moves the ball in the right direction. Dean, I'll give you the final word. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with everybody. And, you know, that's why uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Ohio Supreme Court rules on some of these redistricting lines or reapportionment, because I think that's one of the issues we have in Ohio and the country is the way the districts are drawn. Uh, they lend towards the fringes, the crazy left and the crazy right. So that's where I come off on it. OK, Sheila, Alex, Bob, Dean, Jane, thank you so much for participating in this conversation. Thanks to everybody who listens. It's Today in Ohio.